I chose you. Taken from where Jesus said, you did not choose me, I chose you. And when it dawns on you, God chose me. When you feel like you can't hold on, you need to remember, you're not the one who initiated this relationship, Jesus is. There is the strength and power of a greater decision holding you and I as we go through the storms of life. When you're truly saved and Jesus is Lord of your life, it is not the strength of your ability to keep that relationship. He chose you and he is able to bring you into the safe harbor of his destiny, his purpose for you to glorify him through your life. And that is an empowering thought. And we shared that last week. Unfortunately, the message didn't record. So I figured, you know, I'm not going to preach it again. I just went home and turned on the iPhone, sat down, and I just shared it. So it's up there. It's on faithchristianchurch.com, and it's on our uh, YouTube channel. So if you'd like to see that, it's a precursor to this. This is part two, and I want to share about the woman with the issue of blood who touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Um, she had a hemorrhage of 18 years, and by law, as, as she was hemorrhaging, she was not allowed, according to the law of Moses, to go out into society, much less be pressing through a crowd of people in the street. Yet the Bible says that when she heard of Jesus, a lot of people hear Jesus, but when she heard, she truly saw him. She saw him for who he was. She probably didn't have a full-blown revelation, great theological depth in her understanding, but she knew this is God come to me. She sensed the choice, the loving choice of God drawing her heart. And she said, if I just touch his clothes, I will be whole. You might be familiar with that story. I just want to share um, what happened after she touched his garment. And healing flowed out of Jesus through the bottom of his robe and into that woman. And she was instantly healed. And so in Mark chapter 5, verse 30 through 31, it says, Jesus knew at once that power had gone out from him. He turned around on the crowd and he said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing against you, and you're saying, Who touched me? This story presents a very dramatic contrast between the mind of Christ and worldly thinking. As you listen to this message this morning, I want you to bear this general thought in mind. And that is, the more that you receive and obey Jesus Christ in your life and obey and understand and, and receive the fact that he chose you, he chose me. The more you embrace that, the more you focus on the fact that he's chosen you, the less groupthink and others' opinions of you will have power over you. So I want you to think of those two conflicting powers, the power of Jesus' choice, his love for you, his desire, and that he has chosen you and you have received that choice, and the Holy Spirit has been sent into your heart. The power of that orientation, that focus, versus the power of living for the approval the opinions of the society around you, beginning with your family, place where you work, your friends, what people think of you. 
It's so important that you're delivered from that focus and from that grip over your life. You know, Jesus is going through the street. He's thronged with people, and as he's walking, as he always is, and there was never a moment when it wasn't like this with Jesus, he is completely in tune with the Holy Spirit, and he's mission-focused. That's one of the great differences between worldly thinking and the mind of God, the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is always oriented in mission, the mission of God. Whereas worldly thinking usually has to do with how can I improve my condition, my situation, what's going on, and we're looking at our attachments to people and our attachments to things in the world around us and uh, wanting some sort of a change or an improvement. So Jesus is mission-focused and completely in tune with the Holy Spirit, so much so that when the woman with the issue of blood touches the hem of his garment, having said within her heart, if I touch the hem of his garment, I will be whole, he feels and is aware that healing has flowed out from him. He even knows which way it went. It went through someone touching his clothes. He didn't even say, somebody touched me, brushed up against me. He said, someone touched my clothes. He's that aware of the substance that is in him and what is happening relative to the people around him. That is mission-mindedness. Now, so often the purposes of God are moving in a different direction than our own purposes within the same set of circumstances that we find ourselves in. He's pressing through the crowd, and she's pressing through the crowd to get to him. That's where God was moving in that scenario. But everybody else was concerned with crowd control. The disciples had no idea. They were completely unaware of what God was doing. What was their concern? Crowd control. They said to Jesus, well, didn't you see everybody pressing against you? That's where their mind was at. So it's not that God isn't moving in the circumstances that we find ourselves in day to day. It's that he's often moving in a different area than what we're focused on. As Jesus walks through the uh, village, the town, he's 100% aware of the expectations of everybody around him. Their focus, the focus of his disciples, the focus of everyone else around him, for the most part, is need-driven. The need-driven desire to improve their position in the world, materially, mentally, and relationally. That probably captures 90 plus percent of the people on any given day. We are concerned and our efforts are aimed at adjusting or receiving or getting an adjustment of how we are connecting with the world around us, our marriage, our family, um, our health, our finances, as I said, material, emotionally, relationally. So Jesus is walking through all these expectations that are surrounding him and motivating the people that are pressing around him. He's, he is aware of the disciples' worry about what society thinks of Jesus and getting him in front of the right people. 
He's aware of the religious leaders' jealousy towards him. He's completely aware of the political authorities' fear of him. He's also aware of the social activists' desire to manipulate and use him. He is aware of individuals' curiosity concerning him. He's aware of desperate people's hope to gain his attention. But while everyone else is focused on their relationship with the world, Jesus' mission-driven singular purpose is to affect their relationship with God. That's what he's looking for as he encounters everybody as the Gospels move from scene to scene. Where is that woman? Where is that man when it comes to what is in me? The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word was made flesh and lived among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, listen now, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So that's what fills Jesus. Grace and truth, the material of heaven, the core of God. Grace and truth. What is grace and truth? Just very quickly, I would say grace and truth is the truth. Not your truth or their truth or some view of the truth, but there is the truth. And it's the truth being offered with the grace or power to receive it. You can give truth to people, but if it's not offered with the power to receive it, the power to um, accept and the power to apply it, then it is what? Nothing but usually condemnation. We see ourselves relative to the truth. By the way, grace. Uh, grace is not the permission to stay the same. Grace is the power of God to rise up and to be better. It is power, not permission. So Jesus is filled with power to change, power to be conformed to the truth. So Jesus is full of that, and as he moves through society, he is relating with people who are open and aimed in that direction. They have probably lost hope in their connection with the world. They've probably become distressed and, and they've lost their confidence in their ability or the world's ability to have a satisfying, fulfilling relationship. And those could be poor, broken, enslaved and bondaged people or those could be wealthy, full and overflowing people because you can't touch much less fill the emptiness that is in us because of our separation from our maker. And so the maker comes, and he comes full of grace and truth, and he's looking for those who fall or come into the focal range of what he's filled with. And that's what the woman with the issue of blood did. And the moment she did it, he is so in tune with that mission, he knows the connection that happens. Let me just stop for a moment and share with you an exhortation. The Bible says in John 14 and 12 that the Father has called us 
and equipped us to do the works that Jesus did and greater because he goes to the Father. Because he goes to the Father, he sends the Holy Spirit that is operating in him into you and I and the Spirit of God comes in. That's what being born again is. You're not born again because you own the Bible, go to this church or any other church, or even because you believe in Jesus. Because the devil believes in Jesus. You are a Christian not because of what you believe. You're a Christian not because of the church you go to or the moral good deeds that you practice. You're a Christian because you were dead and now you're alive. It's the only thing that distinguishes a sinner from a child of God is you have life in you. Not the life you were born with, which was death waiting to fall over, but eternal life, full of love, full of joy, full of acceptance. Hallelujah. And so he is full of that truth and full of that life, and he's looking for people who recognize it in him and come to him to receive it. So I kind of want to talk about that point this morning, that connection at which we come to Jesus because we need to see that he has chosen us. There's such an incredible deliver, uh, difference between grace and truth and religion. Absolutely, and I'm going right at it this morning. The faith that Jesus inspired in the woman with the issue of blood, it gave her courage despite the restriction that she knew was on her by the law of Moses, which came from God. So there was the religious law that prevented her from going out and moving freely in society. Some of you feel those restrictions upon yourself, that you're not accepted or not allowed. Some of those are religious restrictions. Others are socially imposed. But whatever they are, most of us in some way or another have experienced the feeling there's a barrier, you're not permitted beyond it. There's a ceiling, you can't rise above it. Those kinds of restrictions. There was a religious restriction handed down from God to Moses to that woman. And yet, she hears of Jesus. And what she sees in him, what she hears, gives her courage that inspires a faith that gives her a workaround. Not in avoiding the law, but superseding the law. The law says you can't go in public so you can't approach Jesus. But she sees in him something flowing towards her that gives her the courage to say, I believe he will accept me. I feel the, the desire of God to forgive me of my sins. I feel and sense the desire of God to accept me and to receive me. And armed with that courage, she makes her way out into the street, presses through the crowd, reaches out, takes hold of the hem of his garment, boom, healing. Feels her, she instantly feels in her body that she's made whole. Jesus turns around and said, who touched me? The disciples, where's their head at? Crowd control. What do you mean? We're trying to keep the, the crowd calm. They have no idea what God's been doing. They didn't discern the woman. They didn't know that there's somebody that they need to be aware of. But Jesus is there. And that happens, and it's just absolutely wonderful. 
Let me say that the more focused on Jesus that you become in your life, the more aware you are that he chose you, the less groupthink has power over you. And the less inhibited you are by the opinions of other people, and the more available you are to hear the voice of God and have the Holy Spirit direct you. The two are antithetical. Groupthink, group faith, societal righteousness is antithetical and diametrically opposed to the Word of God, to the voice of the Holy Spirit, to the grace and truth that is in Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come to save systems, groups, or even families. He came to restore individuals' relationship and accountability to Almighty God. So the more you realize that he chose you, the more you realize what I shared last week when Jesus said, I chose you out of the world. The act of me taking hold of you and choosing you, that act extracted you out from under the dominion of the spirit of the world. While you still live on the planet, you have been chosen out of the world. Holiness, living in the hands of God, is not the requirement that brought about your choosing. It's the result of your choosing. Hallelujah. The Bible says that the law came through Moses. And the, the basic work of the law was just one basic thing, terror. The law terrified people in the presence of God. As people tried to approach God, the law came up. And the law, Paul writes, was good because it rightly terrified people. It let people know, you're about to put your hand in the fire. Don't do it. You try to tell your, your children, Mel, don't, don't touch the burner on the stove. I think, Heather, you probably did that once when you were just a little toddler. You know, don't, don't touch the stove. Heather's an adventurer, an explorer. <laughs> Boom, hand went right up there. One and only time it ever happened. The law did that. It let people know. It threw them back into the hopeless condition that their sin had them bound in. There was not a thing anybody could do to get right with God. The law made us aware that sin has one road, one path, and one destination, and that is death. Ezekiel said, the soul that sins shall die. Simple as that. And the reason why the law was put into place was because there's nothing you and I can do, especially collectively in groups, to try to elevate ourselves and make ourselves feel better among ourselves and build, like Nimrod did, the Tower of Babel and bring ourselves up so that we can compete with God or be accepted with God. You know, those towers of Babel that are built, they're never built to observe God. They're always built to become God. They're always built to compete with God. And the Tower of Babel is, is unfortunately one of the taproot spirits behind the system of denominationalism in churches today. Regardless of the modern uh, uh, best intentions of the individual people, 
there are towers of Babel all over the world in the name of Jesus. And God wants to free people from those systems. So the law imposes fear. Um, but the law, and this is where I kind of want to take a little turn, and I want you to hang on, come with me. The law really works through group think. It is applied societally. It approaches and deals with man as groups. So group think is necessary to apply the law. The more, and, and the reason why, you, you, you're probably going to take this home and think about it, but the more people congregate, the more their sin manifests. We call them cities. Am I lying? You look into the heart of great urban centers, what do you find? The worst kind of sin. You find sin that is reinventing itself every single day, pushing the envelope, pushing boundaries. You very seldom ever see that congregating of humans and it resulting in the betterment of its individuals. Very seldom. One of the few throughout history is called the Great American Experiment. And in spite of that, we are pockmarked with our failings as a nation and as a people. And so I just leave with you that you think about it. The more people congregate, the more their sin manifests. Think about it. God creates Adam and Eve. They walk in perfect communion and fellowship with him. And yet, here comes Satan lying and telling Adam's wife, listen, God really didn't mean don't eat, don't receive the knowledge of good and evil. He's just trying to keep that from you because he knows that if you receive the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like him. You'll be like, he'll lose his edge with you and you'll be elevated and you'll be like him. She goes, you know, <clears throat> that fruit looks pretty good. That sounds good to me. The moment she said it, sin occurred, I want to say, didn't enter in, it occurred within her. Her husband agreed with her. It occurred within him. And immediately they were aware of their sin. What was the first thing that they were aware of? They were now enemies of God. They were now in darkness. They had made Lucifer. They had made Satan their overlord. And now the lease that God the Father had given to Adam and Eve to rule over the earth, to multiply, to bring it under their cultivating dominion in fellowship with God, was lost, and they sublet the world to Satan. And he became, as the Bible says, the God of this world. Not the God of the planet or the God of the earth, the God of the system of the world. And every human born from Adam on was born under the dominion of Satan and under the system of sin. One of the first things you find when Adam and Eve leave the presence of God, when they're barred from the presence of God, they're out in the world, is people start to congregate. People start to build societies. The Nimrod syndrome. If you don't know it, Google or look up in your Bible Nimrod and study in the scriptures who Nimrod was. He was, I think, probably the first architect 
of the urban condition. He called all the different people together and he said, let's make a project of building a tower. We're going to elevate ourselves into the heavens and become like God. And you remember the story how that God said, no, nope, not today. And he made the tower collapse and he separated the people and sent them out with different languages so they could. He slowed, he impeded, he slowed down the rot, the, the charge into satanic darkness that humanity began. How did that acceleration begin to take place? Getting people under group think. Sin likes to not be alone. Sin always wants to be synergistic and join up with other people. Jesus is called the second Adam. I don't know how many of you realize that, but theologically he's referred to by the Apostle Paul as the second Adam. God said, from the very beginning before the earth was ever created, I'm going to create man. He's going to choose to be independent from me. He's going to go through the process I just described to you. He's going to need to be saved, and then I myself, I will come. And they will call me the second Adam because it's like a second chance for humanity. But it will be me, not a creation of me, me. The Word made flesh. The Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all in that one man, Jesus Christ. That's who was walking through the town. When the woman said, oh, I see him, and I believe he has chosen me. I'm obviously ad-libbing. If I touch them of his garment, he will heal me. Why would he do that if he'd not chosen, chosen us? Hallelujah. So they call him the second Adam. The very moment that Jesus shows up, he begins to do what? He announces, he preaches that he is there to restore individual relationship and accountability with God through himself. He preaches the law of Moses has come to its end. It will not save you. It's done exactly what I sent it to do. It has induced and produced fear in you, bringing you face to face with the utter damnation of your condition and the fact that there's nothing you can do to save yourself. You are facing an eternity away from the presence of God and in everlasting darkness. And the law has done that, but that was never my purpose. The law was inserted. It was added to help bring you to an understanding. What was that understanding? I need a Savior. That's why when Jesus came, for God so loved the world, he gave his son. That message hit thirsty souls like water to a man or a woman ready to die in the desert. God loves me. God wants me. That's why it was so important when Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I came. In fact, I created this terrarium called the earth. I made mankind. This whole historical drama is all my doing so that I could come to you this day and reinstate your relationship with God with understanding. You'll now understand why you were created. You'll now understand and appreciate who you are because you'll know who I am. And you'll have right relationship and relate with me rightly. And you won't believe that foolish nonsense when the devil says to you, you can compete with God. You'll know there's no surviving competing with God. 
because it's not possible. It's not that God's egotistical. He doesn't want people to compete with him. It's that they can't compete with him. There's one creator, and then there's creation. Holiness means God is other than creation. It means it is not possible for people to compete with God. You can't go out and cobble together your own little Tower of Babel and turn yourself into God. It won't work. You are what you are, and you'll never escape the boundaries of that. So I have come to awaken you, to make you know why I created you, and to give you the opportunity to cross this gulf, to cross this chasm of eternal damnation, and come and be my child the way I created you to be, and truly know fulfillment. That's why Paul writes to the Corinthians, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. For God has revealed them to us by the Spirit. The Spirit knocked on the door of the woman with the issue of blood, and when she acted upon that invitation, what happened? Instantly, healing flowed. The more people awaken today to what I'm sharing with you, the more you'll see those miracles happening because God has not changed. God is still God. The miracles, healing signs, and wonders that took place through Jesus were not a publicity stunt. Theologians would try to tell you that it was Jesus' temporary shoehorn of publicity to fit him into society and get people to receive him. That's utter rubbish. Jesus healed people because he's Jesus and because God so loved the world. He delivered people because that's what he is. It was not a program. It was not a public policy for the moment. Hallelujah. And we need to discover the Jesus who heals and, to, and raises up people like you and works those miracles through you like he did Paul and Peter and the Stephen and the apostles. Hallelujah. Somebody say amen. amen. So I got to preaching. I didn't get off base or anything, but it kind of slowed me up. <laughs> Let me get back on my course. Jesus shows up. He starts to preach, I am here to restore individual relationship and accountability with God. What happens next? The first thing that happens is out come the managers of group faith, and they're going right at him. Satan pops up. And he goes right at Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is messing with the lie. Jesus is messing with Satan's hold over humanity by telling people, God is inviting you to come and to know him, but come by yourself. You don't need anyone else to speak for you. You don't need your mother or father to, or your friends to come and, and uh, bring an endorsement or an invitation and say, you really should, Lord God, you should consider accepting Glenn. Let me just tell you, he's a really helpful guy. He says, just come. Come broken, come with your mess. Do you think there's anything about you that I don't know? Why am I inviting you to come? Because I love you. I choose you, not you chose me. You haven't tugged on my heart. You haven't uh, emotionally engaged me. I came because this is who I am and this is my purpose, to love you, to have you as my child. Somebody say praise the Lord. Praise 
The society whose leading influencers are people who hate God and rebel against Him will always be a turbo incubator of sin. And that is true today. The more godless people run this country, the more American society becomes a turbo incubator for sin. How many of you, not just in your lifetime, but just in the past five years, ten years, maybe even less, have said, wow, we have hit quantum speed. This society isn't what it was ten years ago. It's amazing how fast we're going down into darkness. Turbo incubator. There's more sin, more rebellion, more insanity, more rebellion against reality. Being created, being, uh, probably created is not the right word, but, but being uh, developed as people congregate together in group think, and their thinking produces incredible levels of despair and evil, driving society as far and as fast as they can away from God. Why? Because of people at the top, teaching in universities, leading, speaking from pulpits, are turning people away from the fear of the Lord, from love for Jesus, from the truth, from grace, and rebelling against God. What are they doing? They are motivated completely by the lie. God really didn't mean that. Let me lead you. They're a bunch of nimrods. That's what we have today. Every time that happens, those societies impose a communistic tyranny over the sin-drunken subjects that they have taken control of. Is that not happening today? We all know the verse Proverbs 29 and 2, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, what? The people groan because they're made slaves to a communistic autocracy. And sin is breaking out and ruining lives. The more that you allow yourself to be governed by groupthink, the more you allow yourself to be led by the opinions of other people, the more you're going to drift from the voice of God. You must become solitary. Do not ignore the secret place of the Most High. Why is it a secret place? Because only you know where that place is. Let me share with you out of history a perfect example. Way back in the Old Testament, parents sacrificed their babies, their children, to a demon god called Baal. They slew their children, threw them into the fires of Baal, offered them up to that demon god. Can I ask you, what sane mother or father would ever do that? They did it because they were under the influence of a group. No mother or father living on some farm out in the middle of nowhere, unassociated, unaffiliated, and, and, and 
unregistered with some group would ever do that to their children. But they did it when they became part of a group think, group society. Under the pressure of what others think, people will do the absolute worst and behave in ways they would never behave if they got alone by themselves and let God begin to deal with their heart. Can you say amen? That's why when Jesus showed up, out came the Pharisees, the managers of groupthink, and went right at them. They were Satan's tool to crucify him, and he just drew them in. He just drew them in because they had no idea they would be offering up the lamb of God to take away our sins. Somebody say, praise the Lord. You know, I'm going to kind of bring this to a close. There is a, there's a response. But the number one reason why people don't get saved, let that sit with you, question. What's the number one reason why people don't get saved? The number one reason why when faced with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace and truth of a loving Savior, the reason why they don't get saved is because they love their sin and don't want to stop. You know, I wish I could give you a beautiful pearly response, but it's as ugly as that. The unvarnished truth, that's it. People love their sin. They don't want to stop. And they don't want to be told that it's evil. They don't want to believe it's evil. They will criticize your sin, but they will justify their own. They will put down other brands of sin, but their particular sin, don't want to give it up. And that is why people do not come to Jesus. But as I said, sin has one singular path, and that path is death. The soul that sins, it will die. So let me say to you again, the more you allow yourself to be governed by societal groupthink, or you worry about people liking you, or that, that, uh, that they won't accept you, the more you are going to remain a slave to your sins. You cannot live under Nimrod. You cannot live in the Tower of Babel. Group identity, group think, and by the way, group faith. This formula that has enslaved humanity is in the church. It's called group faith. I join this church because this church has the right relationship with God. So if I have a good relationship with this church and its leadership, and they have a good relationship with God, then by extension, I have a good relationship with God. That's why when people say, I'm Catholic, I'm Baptist, I'm Lutheran, we are independent. Oh, I go to faith Christian church. You know, we got the right doctrine. Any such kind of trusting is called group faith, and God will never receive it because it cripples you from the very thing Jesus came to bring. I love you. Come to me with all your brokenness. Come to me with what's messed up about your life. Come to me. I'm the only one who can fix you. Stop relying on Faith Christian Church. Stop relying on the Baptist Church or the Assemblies of God or whatever group. There is no such thing as group faith. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? So the only way to come to Jesus is break away from group dependence. Strip the clothes off of societal excuses. That's huge. Is that happening today? It is amazing the get-out-of-jail-free cards that Satan is handing out to people. You can't help yourself. You're an oppressed person. 
You're a subjugated person. You are a person whose privileges have been withheld. Whatever, whatever it is, society loves to hand out societal excuses. Everything like that, every single bit of it, makes you a slave. It's like a drug. It addicts you to group think, group approval, societal excuses. Strip them. Get rid of them. You don't need them. Forsake hypocrisy and come to Jesus in naked honesty. Come. You're not going to get any better. You don't need to get any better. Come. He will do with you what needs to be done. Come to him like those who wept at his feet, washed his feet with their tears. Notice the people that really came to Jesus. They came. They didn't try to present themselves. I go to this synagogue. I have the approval of my pastor. They came naked and honest. I close with this verse, Hebrews 4.13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. The Lord says, I see you. You are naked and fully exposed to me. The very moment you try to come to me by grabbing some covering, grabbing some affiliation, covering yourself, you have forfeited our connection. He cannot fellowship with you unless you come to him in truth, naked and honest. This is, and then the joy begins, then the mercy, then the blessing, then the healing. Somebody say praise the Lord. I'm going to leave this with you. I'm going to stop at this point. I want you to remember the, 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 the basic takeaway is that individual relationship with Jesus, if you want it, get out from under groupthink. Stop relying on the approval of others. Stop worrying about what people think. It's killing you. It's binding your life. It's never going to get better. Your only hope, forsake it, throw yourself into the hands of the one who sees you. Amen. Now remember, he sees you naked, and yet he came for you. He died on the cross for you, seeing you with all your warts, he doesn't want you any other way. Come. He will help you. He'll deal with the warts. He will bring you to himself because he loves you. Amen.